0: this show is for you.
1: We promise to bring you real and authentic conversations with parents and experts who are committed to making their family their life's most
0: important work. This show will help you take a stand for your family and to raise your children by design, not default.
1: Hey, today we have a really awesome guest on the Family Band podcast, Katie Wells, aka Wellness Mama. Welcome, Katie,
2: to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited we get to chat.
1: Yes, we got connected. We had a mutual friend that um, connected us. And, you know, I've been diving into your work, you know, ever since that connection. And I really love so many things that that you share on such a wide variety of topics that I think our audience will really enjoy learning all of the things from you.
2: Well, likewise, I'm excited for the connection. I've been reading your content and listening as well. And I love your mission and what you're doing. And I'm super honored to get to chat today. Thank you. Okay, let's dive in. So maybe you can just tell us a little bit
1: about how you became wellness mama
2: yeah i'll try to give the short version but basically about 15 years ago almost 16 now um i had my first son and was sitting in the doctor's office at the follow-up appointment at six weeks and the doctor was running late so i was just reading through everything in the waiting room waiting for the doctor and one of the last magazines i picked up i believe was time magazine that year which was 2006 And there was an article, and this quote stood out to me, and it said that for the first time in two centuries, the current generation of American children would have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. And up to that point, my background was actually in journalism. So I hadn't really considered the health and wellness world. I hadn't considered much beyond food being calories, and that was about it. But reading this article and hearing all these statistics about what his generation was going to face while looking at this tiny, perfect newborn... I resolved in that moment that I wanted to help shift that trend and change that. And simultaneously I started having some weird health issues of my own. And now looking back, I can say, if you want to create autoimmune disease, just be, you know, super type A and driven and don't sleep enough and be really stressed and don't eat very much. And if you do eat, eat really bad food. And that was kind of my perfect storm during college. And so all these things were hitting at once, and I turned to my background in journalism to start researching, figuring if anytime we see a trend change that drastically, that quickly, something has to be going on. There has to be one or more triggers that are causing this, because that's not a gradual progression that you would see over time. And just started really spending a ton of time reading medical journals and researching and trying to see when these trends were shifting, what might have been contributing And then writing about it, because that's how I process. And with the background in journalism, it made sense to just write. And since then, a beautiful community of moms has developed. And I really firmly believe that moms have an incredible ability to change the course of society and that women are a force of nature, especially moms. And so I realized if other moms, if I could help other moms have access to that information and to to practical tools, I really believe that moms will be the ones that change that statistic going forward.
1: I love that. And so that started out, did it start as a blog at first?
2: Mm-hmm. Just a blog. And then now it's since developed into a podcast as well. Um, but just sharing my writing and realizing there were so many other women in similar health situations or ha- who had kids with similar health situations. And there was just a growing awareness of health and wellness. Um, things I wrote about back then are so mainstream now, and I love seeing that. But in the early days, I was buying grass-fed meat out of the back of a truck at an Amish farm because it wasn't available yet. And There were not things like you couldn't buy coconut oil in the grocery store. It was a whole different world back then. And I think largely in part from all these moms making household changes, we're seeing really the mainstream conversation shift. And that's been super exciting. Yeah, I feel like I,
1: yes, can totally, totally relate. And I actually had my first child in 2007. So our uh, parenting journeys have, you know, happened along the same timeline, Um, which you have. What's the age range of your kids right now?
2: So I have six, my oldest is 16, and the baby just turned seven.
1: Awesome. So yeah, we're just the same because our oldest is 15, youngest is is six. So I think that's a cool, a cool thing that we had that, you know, simultaneously happening for us. Did you ever feel overwhelmed by like what you were taking on and reading and wanting to do?
2: Absolutely. I think early motherhood is an overwhelming period of life to begin with and then trying to grow a business side-by-side side with growing children. Um, I also think that in some ways that busyness helped me to be more effective at work because the kids and the family were always going to be the top priority for time. And so I had to get very efficient at being effective when I was working and getting a lot done in a short amount of time. Um, there definitely was some irony where I would be researching and writing about the benefits of sleep at like 2 in the morning when the kids were asleep. Not so I, Yeah, not sleeping myself. So I didn't always perfectly... Uh, walk the walk, especially in the beginning. But um, I'm really grateful actually that those things sort of overlapped and that my kids have gotten to have front row seats to entrepreneurship and to seeing me overcome challenges. Um, I think that's been a really cool part of their story as well as they now, some of the teenagers are running businesses on their own now. So it's been cool to see if their journeys sort of overlap a little as well. Very cool.
1: What do you say about, you know, when I'm hearing you say that, I'm like, Ooh, this is a question that I think I hear families talking about all the time is what's your opinion on a work life balance?
2: Mm, such a good question. I think in general, balance is a moving target. And I think it's not something we achieve in every area every single day, which is the thing I learned to give myself some grace over totally. and realizing that if we look at a longer period of time, you can get all the things done, but you can't get them all done every day. And that's okay. And it's helped me let go of some of my perfectionist tendencies. But I think it's also, there's a kind of equal parts of being really intentional with your time. But then also, especially when I speak to moms a lot, I talk about it's not usually actually the getting things done that is overwhelming. It's the number of open loops we mentally carry as moms and all the things we manage in our heads. So, anytime we can get some of that out of our heads and into a system that the rest of the family knows and that is at least defined and written down and concrete, it at least takes away that mental load. And whether that's things like, prioritizing meal planning and bulk cooking so that we're not hitting that 4 p.m. Like, oh, I gotta make something for dinner and then now they're stressed from that Mm -hmm. or that our kids can be more involved because everybody knows what we're making for dinner that night or whatever it may be. Um, It also taught me early on, one of my non-negotiables with parenting is that except for reasons of like connecting, I won't do anything for my kids that they're capable of doing themselves. And that means if I'm actually honest about that, by the time they're four or five, they really are capable of things like cleaning their own room, Doing their own laundry, helping out actually with things in the house that really do contribute, and so I keep that top of mind. Uh, and that doesn't mean I won't braid their hair at night, even if they're capable of braiding their hair. Or that we won't read a book if, even though they're capable of reading a book, I still love those connection moments. But when it comes to all of us co-creating and contributing to the family together in our household culture, I don't do that for them, and they're not helping me by contributing to the house. We're all doing that together. It's a shared goal that we're moving toward.
1: That's cool. We were at church this past Sunday and the format was that there was someone that was in high school that was speaking and he mentioned something about how his mom um, made his lunches and did his laundry. And my kids looked at me like, mom, come on, mom, like, why don't you like make our lunches and do our laundry? And I'm like, I am setting you up like to know how to do all of those things. Like, I want you to know how to do those things and be fully independent and leave our house knowing and feeling confident in that you can take care of yourself and provide for yourself. So I love that. um, I'm not the only mom who makes their kids do their laundry.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. At the end of the day, we're raising adults, not kids, even though we're walking with them in their journey of childhood. And very much like you, my goal is to help them be as autonomous as possible and have those foundational skills that I know I had to learn some of those when I was in college. And many of my friends had a much even steeper learning curve. Like I have clear memories of being in the dorm doing laundry. And there were people who had never had to do their own laundry and they were learning in college for the very first time and just realizing like, I want my kids to have confidence in those areas and it not be another thing they have to learn once they leave home. And then they're also navigating everything that comes with adult life.
1: Absolutely. Okay. I have a lot more parenting questions to ask you, but I want to back up, back just a bit going back to, you know, what you were saying, all your research that you've done about um, like overall health and wellness. I recently, so I graduated high school 20 years ago, and I recently um went with a group of friends to, we went on a little cruise together, like a 20-year reunion cruise. And it was so interesting. I hadn't spoke to a lot of them in, in many years. And it was so interesting to see just how different, um, I guess, lifestyles have created, you know, fast forward 20 years, like different outcomes, like for for each of us. Um, particularly around health and wellness. Like my, for example, one of them had a, a headache and their first line like to take care of the headache was different than my first line would be to take care of the headache. And it just struck me like, oh, the things that I think is how everyone operates around health and wellness are, are not. Like they're they're very different. There's different ideas of, of overall health and wellness. So what would you say to a person who's maybe starting out where you were, you know, 2006, Wanting more for just wanting more overall health, like where would you tell them to begin?
2: Yeah, this is a great question. And I think one thing I have learned over the years is that there's so much individualization and personalization when it comes to health and wellness. And that's one thing I realized in hindsight. I was much more dogmatic at first when I would learn something new and I would be so excited about it and I would want to tell everyone. And realizing now, having been in that world for so long and seeing so many other people and trying other approaches, realizing Every quote unquote expert in the health world, they have definite value that they can bring and they have usually figured out what works for them. And there's always stuff we can learn from that. But also at the end of the day, they f- figured out what works for them. And that's just a springboard for each of us to figure out. So I've been trying to give more resources and speak to helping people kind of, I say, become their own primary health care provider, realizing at the end of the day, we care more about our own health or hopefully do than any doctor ever could. And even if we work with amazing partners in our health, at the end of the day, the responsibility still lies with us. And, and for those of us who are moms, our the responsibility of our children's health also lies with us. And so. I've also realized over the years, there's been a lot of trends of really getting excited about the new supplement or the new biohack or the new fancy thing or whatever it may be. And I think there's value in a lot of those and they certainly can be really helpful. But the other lesson I've learned over the years is at the end of the day, I think it's 80% the small, either inexpensive or free foundational habits that we do daily that make the biggest difference over the long term. So not anything against supplements and nothing against if you want to have red light therapy in your home or whatever your things are that you like. But I think at the end of the day, the foundational principles that are free make the biggest difference. And if we get those right, anything else we add on is going to be more effective as well. So now I speak a lot more to really dialing in our sleep because we know the data of just how drastically that impacts everything from hormones to neurotransmitters, to muscle repair, to flushing the beta amyloid plaques in our brain. Like that has far reaching effects into every area of our waking life as well, or things like. Morning sunlight, even if it's a cloudy day, just going outside for five or 10 minutes in the morning is one of the biggest signals you can do for your health, for your circadian rhythm, for your sleep that night. Um, I also say if it's possible, midday sunlight also is a good signal. So if you can just get outside a couple times a day, Um, that triggers certain light receptors in your eyes that start the clock for melatonin production at night that reinforce good cortisol patterns. And that's also really valuable, especially for women for natural hormone cycles and making sure we're making the right amounts of progesterone and estrogen and testosterone as well. Um, And things like that. And just starting with a really the basics of a good hydration and a clean diet that comes mostly from real food that are ingredients, not food that has a lot of ingredients. Um, I think those small daily habits make such a big difference far beyond doing any of these expensive or fancy biohacks.
1: yeah, that's interesting, and you're right. there are there is always so many new biohacks and new like cutting edge research coming out that's saying you all these things that you could be doing or should be doing. So I love what you're saying that a lot of times the most impactful ones are ones that are probably pretty easy for us to to make adjustments with. Going back to sleep, what would you what's the current research saying about sleep?
2: Yeah, well, I will say of over 600 episodes of my podcast, I'm yet to have anyone argue ever that sleep is not important or not valuable. So this is one of even people from varying approaches all seem to agree on the importance of sleep. And because we spend that's the statistics vary, but roughly a third of our life sleeping. I feel like investments made in the sleep category really can pay dividends in other areas of life. So I think it's dependent on people's budgets, but I really do prioritize in my house our sleep environments. So that's things like looking at temperature, light and food as signaling mechanisms. So I make sure the sleep environment has the ability to be completely dark. Um, If you live in an area without a lot of artificial light, there's also an argument for having blinds open at night and getting moonlight, especially for women, because that actually can influence hormone cycles. But if not, um, going to a dark room is usually the best option. And there are now even very inexpensive things like blackout curtains on Amazon even that you can get to control the light environment in your room. Temperature is also a big one. So that can be as simple as keeping the temperature in your home in the mid-60s kind of is the ideal for sleep. Or a little bit more energy efficient of an option is to use something like a chili pad that cools the bed itself. So you can keep your sleep environment cooler without having to cool the air of your entire house. Um, That's been a big one for me. It's helped a lot with sleep. It's one I wish I had when I was pregnant, but it didn't exist yet. Um, And then simple things like food being a really big signal of sleep patterns as well. So if possible, if we can stop eating as close to sunset as possible and give ourselves several hours before sleep, that'll make a big difference for people who are tracking in things like deep sleep because the body's able to digest and not be using resources to digest in the middle of the night. So we'll get a lower resting heart rate earlier. Typically, we'll get more deep sleep, which usually happens from that 10 p.m. to 2 2 a.m. window. Um, And so little changes like that can make a huge difference. And then I would say beyond that, it would be the things like if you can get a good mattress that's both the right support for you and also free of any kind of added chemicals or flame retardants, Um, because we are on that for eight hours a day, hopefully we're getting enough sleep. Um, That's a big input. And you're not just laying on it, getting skin contact. You're also breathing the air that's right around that mattress. So if that has a lot of chemicals in it, you're going to be getting skin and lung exposure to those while you're sleeping. Um, I also love anything, because the great thing in sleep is if you set up your sleep environment, it's then no effort. You're going to sleep anyway. So you don't have to do anything consciously to get those benefits, whether it's the cool environment or the, the no light in your room. And so it's kind of a compound affect over time, which is something I look at in health and also in finances and also in relationships, is that anytime I can get the benefits of compounding something that's going to improve itself continually over time, uh, I love to prioritize those kind of things.
1: Yeah. Is the current uh, recommendation, you mentioned eight hours, is that kind of what is currently recommended for people as optimal? It,
2: it varies. There's definitely some debate there. And it seems that women actually do need more sleep than men on average to get the same benefits uh, by a little bit of a degree. Um, I would say eight hours is kind of the agreed upon average, though there are also people who argue that just like when we're awake and we have cycles of wakefulness during sleep, we kind of go in 90 minute cycles of sleep. And so a lot of people will suggest getting some increment of 90 minutes. Um, So hopefully more than six hours, maybe like seven and a half, maybe nine if it's possible and experimenting with that, which seems to be really impactful for some people and others don't notice a difference. So I think, again, it goes back to that individualization aspect and experimenting with what works for you, but that's it could be a good starting point for that experimentation.
1: Yeah. I've always felt like I required a little more sleep than my husband, than Chris. Um so that's interesting that it sounds like that's not unique to to us, like that that men may need less sleep than women. Interesting.
2: Yeah. And for anybody who's having any kind of specific health problem, even if it's not related to sleep, often prioritizing sleep and giving your body more rest time will make a big difference in helping it recover from whatever you have going on.
1: I also um, have been reading recently about, like you said, um, women and the moon, that menstrual cycles used to be more closely tied to the moon than they
2: are now. And I thought that was so fascinating. Yeah. And I think in today's world with artificial light, that's harder to dial in, but because I prioritize sleep so much when my cycle did sync up to the moon, I was so excited because I was like, I finally got all the light cues right. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. And so then I guess moving forward, talking about
1: light cues, you said morning sunlight for five to 10 minutes. And that just looks like getting outside when you wake up. Or what yes. With so a little bit of nuance. That?
2: The The caveats would be as soon as possible after waking, assuming that you wake up after the sun comes up, if not as soon as possible after the sun rises. And it does need to be outside. So not through a window, because even though we see a lot of light through a window, a lot of the spectrums of light that come naturally outside are reduced when they go through glass. So getting actually outside, it doesn't mean you have to stare at the sun. Of course, I wouldn't even recommend staring directly at the sun, obviously. Um, But it's really just that five to 10 minutes. And people who have really looked at this on the data side with labs people do see really measurable changes in their hormone panels when they dial in that morning sunlight and i love that people like huberman have really popularized this concept and now everybody's talking about morning sunlight which is awesome um, But but there's specialized light receptors in the in the eyes that respond to that light specifically and so the early morning one is a big deal as soon as possible after waking And it really can just be five or 10 minutes. Um, Hydration in the morning is also pretty important because we lose up to a liter or more of fluid at night just from respiration. So it's a great habit to get into to just drink some water or water with electrolytes first thing in the morning while outside before coffee, before food. Um, That'll help the body rehydrate. It'll be good for digestion and then also really reinforce those hormone cycles. Um, So that's an easy one. And the same thing, that makes that light beneficial is a lot of the reasoning behind avoiding artificial light after sunset. So one tip I've done in my home that seems to really help kids sleep is we have full spectrum bulbs in the ceiling lights of our house that are bright, which is how we would experience light outside. It's from overhead. It's bright. It does have the blue spectrum. Um, Blue light is not bad. It's the timing. I know blue light's kind of gotten a bad reputation. Mm -hmm. It actually is a very important signaling mechanism. So I advise if possible get that midday sunlight, which is going to be very high in blue light and hopefully brighter. Um, And that's an overhead light. That's another reinforcing of that circadian rhythm. And then when the sun goes down in our house, we switch off those lights and we turn on lamps that are eye level or below and that have low or no blue light in them. And that helps melatonin production begin. And it helps that sleep cycle start to your body start to move toward that. Um, But that's just been an easy switch rather than trying to have different lighting. um, There's also something to the fact that it's eye level or below. Because in nature, if we were experiencing light after sunset, it would likely be from a fire or something that was pretty close to ground level. And there's different receptors in different parts of the eyes that respond to that. So even red light above is slightly less beneficial than red light eye level or below. So For me, the easiest way to dial that in is just lamps with those particular kind of bulbs and then bright lights overhead and normal household lighting. Yeah, I think
1: I listened to a podcast where you spoke about this, and this was probably like a week or two ago, and um, I started turning, I did start doing it, turning on just the lamps, you know, um, in the evening, but I think my whole family was like, what are you doing? And I'm like, no, this is like something I want to do. And actually, to me, it just feels good to like, it does feel like a signal like, okay, it's time to start winding down. And
2: I've really enjoyed it the last couple of weeks, you know, trying to implement it more. That's awesome to hear. I know there are people who kind of maybe go to a little bit more extreme and like Dr. Jack Cruz, when he was on my podcast, talked about he doesn't even have artificial lighting in his house at all. And he only uses candles after dark. Wow. I'm not a fan of having tons of candles burning in the house. Um, So I feel like that's a good 80-20 splitting the difference and it's a lot easier. And if people really want to automate it, you can get inexpensive digital timers that are set to sunset. So the lighting will automatically switch in your house at sunset. Very cool.
1: Maybe I'll spend one more minute here and then jump over to some some uh, parenting questions. But you have mentioned how important hydration is, um, and you mentioned with electrolytes. What type of water are you drinking?
2: My house, we filter the whole house because our area already doesn't have a lot of the big offenders in the water supply. So filtering the whole house is pretty inexpensive. Um, there can be a little variation there depending on what your Area puts in their water. There's a lot of fluoride or chemicals in it already. Um, But for us, just filtering the whole house made it easier because kids drink out of bathroom faucets or whatever. (laughs) So now everything is safe drinking water. Um, But I think that's also like the filtration is one part of the conversation. And then, sort of, the mineral content of water is another part of the conversation. And I love that there's more talk now about electrolytes and minerals and what we need in certain balances. So I've talked for over a decade about magnesium and how important that is and how most people with rare exception in today's world are pretty deficient in magnesium because it just is not present in our food supply as much as it once was, and it's not present in our water as much as it once was. So this is something that can be pretty easily and inexpensively supplemented, but a lot of people will also add electrolytes or minerals to their water, which can often improve the taste as well. So I've several ways I do that. Um... There's electrolyte packets called Element that I will drink a couple of throughout the day, and those have sodium, magnesium, and potassium in the, the correct ratios that our bodies need. So often people will find they are not getting enough electrolytes, even if they're hydrated. And if they are, they might not be getting enough potassium specifically. So that one just is an easy one because it has all of those in balance. Or you can add things like trace minerals to your water as well. Um, many people in today's world are actually getting not enough sodium as well. And because our bodies are electrical and a lot of the communication that happens in our body requires electrical activity, whether it be our heart or the sodium potassium pumps in our cells that regulate a lot of those things are dependent on sodium and potassium. So getting enough of those will often make a really noticeable difference in energy levels for a lot of people, um, as well as alertness during the day and digestion. Um, Something
1: you said earlier reminded me that I just want to touch on that you talked about how being your own primary care provider. I love that because it's something we talk about in Family Brand often is that you can't you can't outsource these things. Sometimes it feels like easy that you can outsource like education and your health to your doctor, or to the school. But how important it is that like, no, you you get to take ownership of that and that you can find out what's what's best for you. Because like you said, you are more invested in your health and in your children's education than. Than Anyone else is going to be so I just love that overall
2: philosophy that that you have on that Exactly like well, like I said while doctors can be great partners while teachers can be great partners At the end of the day your doctor cannot possibly know or care more about your body than you Because you're the only one directly experiencing it and choosing the inputs and I think there's tremendous freedom In taking responsibility for that because that gives us tremendous ability to change the outcome Um, And I think there's a beautiful parallel, like you said, with that and with education. At the end of the day, we are each our own primary health care provider. We're also each our own child's primary teacher, even if they do go to school. At the end of the day, we're still their primary teacher. And that responsibility still lies with us, which is a beautiful, I think, beautiful and freeing thing.
1: Totally. Absolutely. So we were both recently had a chapter in a new book that came out by Ben Greenfield called Boundless Parenting. And when I opened it up, I, of course, knew we had this episode and I was like, oh, this is so cool. Like I can read more in depth about Katie's parenting philosophies than, you know, I was able to hear on your podcast or anything. So I really loved diving in and I loved so many things that you shared in in this book. One of them is you talk about um, Unstitute. I think that's kind of your
2: philosophy on education. Will you share with us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. This is one of my favorite topics and it really originated from when my oldest was five and we were considering school options for him, looking at all the available options and trying to ask the question, what actually best prepares him for adult life? And the answer was ironically, I, I don't know, because we don't know what his adult life will look like. That what I do as a job did not exist when I was entering school. So I couldn't have directly prepared for it. So, working backwards from that, kind of taking a first principles approach, I tried to ask, well, what skills and foundational things can best prepare them for whatever future? they encounter as an adult. And I realized that was actually just nurturing and maintaining so many of the qualities that kids naturally have, like curiosity and willingness to ask hard questions and thinking outside the box and creating patterns where other people can't see patterns and curiosity and love of learning and being able to rapidly learn and assimilate new things. Because our children are not going to face a lack of information. Like the entirety of human knowledge is available at their fingertips the day they get a cell phone. So what do they actually need to be able to thrive in whatever adult path they may take? And I realized none of the existing options directly prepared them for that. If we want them to think outside the box and then we send them to a place that's quite literally a box and also teaches them that there's one correct answer to every question, and penalizes them for making mistakes if they get an answer wrong on a test. I'm like, that's not how adult life works. In adult life, we learn from failure. We iterate. We try things. And then if they don't work, we try new things. And so I realized there was not an existing approach that I felt really nurtured those qualities. And so I started creating one from the ground up with my kids as they were starting the school process. And I, like you said, I call it Institute. And it's kind of skills up versus knowledge down. So it's not about just learning and regurgitating information. It's about how do we define and nurture these pivotal foundational skills that I feel like have served me best in adult life as an entrepreneur, and that hopefully will serve them in whatever their future looks like. So do all of your kids homeschool? They all homeschool. And the actual school part only takes two to three hours a day. Um, I realized when you take out the having to go between classes and lunch breaks and driving to and from school and all that, um, a lot of that can actually be taught very quickly. In fact, I think there was even a circulating thing about the true basics, like reading, writing, and basic arithmetic can actually be taught in like 40 hours total. Um, A lot of it is kids needed a place to be during the day and school provided an answer for that. They needed to be in a contained environment where they were being looked after. But if you're actually just looking at how to be efficient and effective in education, it can be done. The the bookwork part can be done in a very short amount of time. And from there, we build on things that I hope are nurturing those qualities I talked about. So they start the morning with three TED Talks on unrelated topics with the idea that children are natural pattern makers. And if you give them unrelated topics, they're going to try to connect them and create patterns and apply concepts from one to another, which is a lot of how innovation happens in the adult world. And so just giving them exposure, plus they're getting to see the best, someone who's the best in their field in the whole world, try to distill their entire body of work in 14 minutes. So they're getting exposure to all of these different concepts and ideas so they can figure out what they are passionate about and curious about and what to pursue in life. We also do something called life skills, kind of stemming from that idea that many people get to adulthood and don't have some of these foundational skills um, and realizing I had more time in the day with them because we could get the book work done quickly. So we do things like how to change a tire or how to rewire an electrical outlet, or how to hang a ceiling fan, or how to cook or how to garden and give them applicable life skills that will hopefully translate in adult life as well
1: yeah, those things that they don't um learn like we had a guest um last fall they have they own what's called the relationship school um Jason Gaddis, and he talked about how you never learn in school like how to be in a relationship and what conflict might look like and how to resolve it. And I was like, it's so true. There's some of these basic things that are never touched on in like a formal education. So I think it's so cool that you're providing that for your kids. Do they choose their own TED Talks and does everyone listen to the same ones? Or is it like each child can choose whatever three TED Talks most interest them in that day?
2: Now that they're getting older, they'll sometimes choose different ones. But we started off just having three of them that were kind of on the TV and that we watched together and then talked about. Um, And I find that they they also have a subject called topics, which is where they just research something, could be any random topic for about 15 minutes, and then distill it into a short paragraph, which was also the idea of trying to help them learn how to curate information, realizing we're going to have access to so much information. Curating it and being able to tell good sources versus less legitimate sources was going to be a valuable skill for them as they got older. That's amazing. We have homeschooled a lot.
1: I'm a homeschooling mother myself. So this is my next question. Is not like, I don't want it to feel like a judgment because I ask myself the same question. Um, but anyway, I like how Ben posed in this book that I was just referencing that we're both in. He said, do you ever worry, like when you're doing things unconventionally like this, that your children, you know, as they grow, might not fit, like feel like they fit in, you know, to the world around them. Does, do you ever worry about that?
2: No, and I think for two reasons. One is that I want to give them the ability to embrace their own uniqueness and to be confident in that uh, and to not feel like they have to fit in with the irony being that people who get good at that ironically often tend to fit in in most social groups and hopefully also to see and appreciate the things that are different in other people so that they can nurture that in relationships. Um But I also think it's funny because that I know homeschoolers kind of get that stigma of not fitting in or people being worried that they're not getting enough socialization. And I think the antidote to that is just being intentional about curating community. Because in a world that's so digital, and I I see this as an adult too, it it can be harder sometimes to really nurture those in-person relationships. And so both modeling for them and helping them make that a priority in their life Um, And so that's something realizing they aren't getting daily interaction just in school, that we've made a priority of um, creating opportunities where they can do that. And whether that's things like sports, where they're getting a social group or youth group at church, or um, for a few years, I actually even ran something called the Blogging Family Mastermind, where I was tired of events where you couldn't bring your kids and it was all focused on business and there was great business content, but there was no family emphasis And I even, to a couple of those, tried to bring a nursing baby and sort of got shunned and told I couldn't be there with a baby who wasn't even making any noise. And it inspired me to create a mastermind that didn't just allow kids, but welcomed them and made them part of the process and taught them business as well from a young age. And so my kids now have those friendships and those are some of their closest friends. But I think it's just in today's more technological world, we just have to be more intentional about creating those in-person connections and communities and by no means do I think that's not possible if you homeschool. I think it actually can be easier because you just have more time available.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I I guess my answer to that question in the book was like, if it, some of my kids are going to public school and I'm like, OK, they're, they do. Sometimes there are some differences that I that I see. But overall, I'm like, no, my kids are like rad. Like they have so many like varied experiences and just different points of view that i think are way maybe they maybe wouldn't have and so i feel actually grateful for for any differences that that i might see i'm like oh, like they're they're doing great 100% agree <laughs> one other thing that you mentioned that i really liked in this in this book is you talked about um pride as a parent the one of the questions that was posed in the book is like what makes you most proud as a parent. And I loved your take on it. You talked about how, you know, I'm not really worried about my pride as a parent. Like I'm worried about instilling, you know, pride in my, in my children. Could you maybe speak a little bit more eloquently than I just said (laughs) about about your philosophy there?
2: Yeah, I think it's a delicate topic. And I've heard from so many adults who maybe have kind of a hole or a wound around not being told by their parents that they were proud of them. But I didn't want to just sort of check that box by telling my kids I was proud of them realizing even the adults who struggle with that it's not that they needed their parents to say they were proud of them it was that as a child that would have reinforced hopefully them feeling confident in themselves and so I looked at how can I nurture that in my kids so they don't depend on exogenous sources for that it like just like motivation -motivation, self-motivation has to come from inside just like discipline while it can be enforced from the outside it's more effective when it comes from the inside so Rather than directly tell them, I'm so proud of you, when they do something, I'll be like, wow, how do you feel? Are you so proud of yourself? You worked so hard. And and also that thing that's often talked about now of not complimenting the intrinsic qualities, but complimenting things that are within their control to change. So not just telling them they're smart, but complimenting them for working hard or for thinking of a unique approach or for having a lot of curiosity about something or for asking a really cool question, because those are things they can get better about and nurture as they get older. And it's within their control. And I know as someone who my parents were very academically focused and I was told I was smart as a kid, it actually gave me some fear around trying new things because I sort of internalized that love and approval were contingent on achievements. And so I was afraid to do things in areas that I wasn't already good at, which is hilarious. Um, because I didn't want to be bad at them and then risk not being loved. And so I wanted to bypass that cycle with my kids. And so anytime I can, I try to speak to things that will help them realize those qualities within themselves versus be dependent on me. But also at the end of the day, of course, I'm super proud of them. And I think they're some of the coolest humans I know. Um, I just didn't want them to depend on me to know that.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that is is important. Yeah, and I can I can see that, yeah, if nothing else you give your kids like, confidence and pride in who they are and who they're becoming like what a beautiful beautiful gift and to know that that you're yeah that they can have that in and of themselves like without anyone else having to influence or impact or have a say in it
2: exactly and and it also just like try to anytime i can call out character qualities that they have control over like a lot of my kids are in sports and my daughter last year was number two in the country for pole vaulting and Waving. even at that level, I didn't want to compliment her on just her pole vaulting. I would try to compliment on how hard she worked because she did. She worked really hard. But more importantly, like I would see her at meets encouraging the other kids or helping coach her competitor to, so that they could be better. And I was like, if I were going to speak to feeling proud as a mom, those are the moments that I feel the most proud of internally and that I try to really tell them, like, I was so impressed with how kind you were. Or because at the end of the day, those are the things I'm like, that's the life skills I really want them to develop and hopefully internalize is, kindness toward other humans and being loving and seeing other people's best qualities. And it's great that they also do good in whatever that they're passionate about. But more importantly, I want them to be kind humans.
1: Absolutely. That's what I I keep going back to this book, but it was like, what makes you most proud? And I shared a story like that my son asked someone to dance at the school dance that people were laughing at and making fun of her. And I was like, that is the kind of stuff that I'm most proud of. Not if it's like, oh, you're the valedictorian or this or that or whatever other accolades. It's like, are you a good human who can like be there for others and as kind to yourself and anyway, all that. So I totally, totally agree. I have just a couple last questions. This has been so good. Thank you for, for sharing so much on such varied, (laughs) varied topics, but I love that you can speak so well to all of these topics because I think sometimes we think that, you know, life is in silos like business and family, but I love how it's so much a part of who you are. Like the the mastermind that you created, where it's like it's all one big conversation. I'm just so fascinated and in awe of what you've created as a mother and a woman, as far as your podcast. And you have a company now where you have. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about your company? Because I received some of your products and they're amazing. So, I mean, that's a new venture that you're doing
2: too. Tell us about that, and then I have another question. Okay, well, yeah, it's called Wellness. And it's a personal care company. And kind of I've mentioned the 80-20 principle a little bit in passing already, but I apply this to a lot of areas of my life, the idea that often 80% of results come from 20% of inputs. So for instance, like 80% of our work results might come from 20% of people that we work with or work that we do, but it could apply in a lot of other areas as well. And what I realized was women especially are exposed to a tremendous amount of chemicals in personal care products. And that's been talked about a lot. We know babies are born with now hundreds of chemicals in their cord blood, which the placenta is a big filter and gets out a lot of that. So it's pretty staggering that that much actually still gets through. Yeah. Um, but I realized women, especially even people who were very interested in the health and wellness world and who were eating really clean, they still used certain personal care products that were conventional because they worked better. And I realized women especially don't want to sacrifice how they look and feel for the sake of just using a more natural product if it doesn't work. And I also realized that certain categories of switches would make that 80-20 difference for people and for families. If they could just replace 20% of the inputs, they could reduce chemical exposure by as much as 80%. So I set out to create hair care and oral care products that would outperform the conventional products without any of the dangerous chemicals and I personally view it as a baseline of, of course, products should not contain toxic ingredients. That should be the bare minimum. But also if we know that the skin is the body's largest organ outside of potentially muscle, you could make that argument, um, and that anything that goes into the mouth or on the skin also enters the body, you can use that to your advantage. So I wanted to create products that used entirely safe ingredients, but also beneficial ones that could benefit us just from being on our skin or in our mouth throughout the day. So that was how wellness was born. Just trying to give that 80 20 approach to families with products we're all using anyway, and in a way that would be a low effort or no effort switch, that would reduce our daily chemical exposure.
1: I love that that you just created that. <laughs> that's yeah, that's amazing. So I guess next question would be, what would you say to a mom listening who feels like, wow, she's like doing it all. Like she's homeschooling, she's running a business, she has a successful podcast what would your advice be to someone who is like how do I how do I do it all
2: well I think I wish I could give people an actual glimpse into my life because we post things on social media and we always try to we we show our best face and if you came in my house on any given day there would be laundry baskets full of laundry on the coffee table and there would probably be cats and children sitting on the kitchen counter and by no means do I do all of it especially not every day like I said in the beginning I think balance is a moving target I think we can get it all done over time but not every single day. And there's certainly days where things on my list don't get done or there's chaos in my house or whatever it may be. Um, So I think it's equal parts kind of giving yourself grace and realizing don't let the perfect be the enemy of the good. And a present mom who shows up is the best gift we can give our kids, not a perfect mom. Um, And that often that mom guilt comes from within us, not from actually outside forces. So giving ourselves grace there, but then also just um, as much as possible over time, building systems that help take the stress part of that equation out so that we can be more present and effective in the things we do have to get done while letting our spouses or our kids be co-creators in that environment. I think there's always that conversation, too, about women taking on the emotional responsibility of so much. And so anytime we can break that mold of letting people help us, which still makes it our emotional responsibility... And bring our family members into being co-creators of our culture and having actual responsibility and contribution to that. I think that helps diffuse some of that mom guilt and that stress that we carry. I love it.
1: Talking about family culture and co-creating, that's a huge part of what families hire us to do with Family Brand is developing that culture. And I love that you said that you already are bringing in your family and you're developing that. Like, And I think that's kind of unique, really, that you've kind of defined that and you talk about your family culture. What has been your process to involve your family in the creation of that?
2: Yeah, I think on the one hand, this may be true for you as well. Having so many kids sort of force taught me that because there did come a point where I physically could not do everything for everyone, even if I had wanted to. Um, but I think it's one of my other kind of first principles of parenting is is treating our children as if they are infinite autonomous beings because they are. And I think if we approach them with that level of respect and actually do treat them with the level of respect we would treat another adult or how we want to be treated, not that we're always going to be perfect at that, but if we approach them with that mentality and that mindset, I am continually just blown away by how much kids can learn, how capable they are of understanding things at a young age, how capable they are of doing things at a young age. And I think when we give them that respect, they rise to that challenge in a beautiful way. Even we had systems in my house for the kitchen, for instance, for years. And one day I came home from a podcast day and my kids on their own had had a family meeting and decided that it wasn't very efficient. And they had made a whole new schedule where they each have different meals and they now have a whole bartering system of IOUs if they're not there for that particular meal. But they realized the system could be improved and they did it themselves. And they were like, mom, uh, you don't have any meals anymore. We got this. And it wasn't even me telling them to do it. They now fully like I have not cleaned my kitchen in months and months. And that was their initiative. And they feel ownership for that. And they feel proud that they keep the kitchen clean and that it's their responsibility. So I think it's really just seeing and acknowledging and loving and appreciating those qualities that our kids already have and letting them rise to that brilliance that they already innately have. That's unbelievable (laughs)
1: that they did that on their own, had the meeting, you know, did the reformed the plan, the system. And you saw a better, a better way to do it. I love that. What? So if you could just give us a a little glimpse into like what it actually looks like. Is it like certain people have um, like the kitchen on these certain days or is it a combination or what does that look like?
2: Yeah. So before it was, I was trying to break down by what they could most easily do at their different ages. And so it was like certain people had dishwashers, certain people had wiping down, certain people had putting food away. And they realized that wasn't very efficient. And they were always like waiting on another person to do their part before they could finish what they needed to do. So now there's a like a spreadsheet on the kitchen uh, fridge that has every day of the week and every meal and which kid is in charge of that meal. And so even the seven-year-old has a couple of meals now that she's entirely responsible for. And that means cleaning everything in the kitchen, doing the dishes, taking out the trash, wiping down the counter, sweeping everything. Um, But because there are six of them, they don't have that many meals each throughout the week. Mm -hmm. And so they actually have less work, they feel like, over time. And they know they're entirely responsible for that whole meal. So there's no waiting on someone else. And it really, truly has run seamlessly. I'm super impressed at how well they've actually managed to run it.
1: Yeah, you got my will spinning because right now we currently have a similar... Well, when we set it up, our youngest two were probably four and five. So I felt like, you know, they can unload the dishwasher, but maybe not capable of some of the other things. But now that they're older,
2: maybe it's time to revisit revisit it. Yeah. And I think also if stepping out of always being the director and problem solver and letting them step into that role, sometimes they can come up with solutions that might be better than we could. And then they have that like pride and ownership of having done that. So they're more likely to follow through. And so that's something I try to build in to the culture as well at any time possible to like let them be the drivers of that and have input and actually really shape it. Um, And even as they get older, I do that in other areas as well. Like I try not to put limits on them short of actual safety related limits. Um, So if the older ones want to do something that I think might be a little out of their maturity level or their ability level, rather than say no, I'll say, okay, well, convince me like this is a thing you want to do. I don't know if you're quite ready. Convince me the burden of proof is on you. And I've also been blown away how many times they have pretty good negotiation skills, and they can make a very strong case for it and There have been many times where I've agreed to it, and they were right, they were perfectly capable of doing whatever it was, and they were safe and it was great, and they had fun so I think just like respecting that brilliance in them and their autonomy at a young age, they will rise to the challenge,
1: yeah, it reminds me of um my oldest son recently he wanted to he's been in high in um public high school the past year or well, junior high and now high school, but he came to me and said, I'm ready to to leave high school. I don't i want to do something else. And I didn't think he was ready for that. Um, but anyway, it so of reminds me of what you're saying because it, we didn't say it in the same way, like <laughs> the burden of proof is on you necessarily, but over time I realized like, oh no, he's he's absolutely capable of this of this thing. And he came to me and we we formulated a plan together. And I just think that sometimes I would have put that limit on him, like, no, like I don't think you're ready. But he knew he was ready. And so trusting trusting our children to to be able to make some of those decisions, you know. And he was showing me like doing the work to show me, like, here, this is the plan. This is what I want to do. And yeah, I think I totally agree that our kids that sometimes I want to put limits on them that aren't there for them, like themselves.
2: Absolutely. And you might have noticed this too with yours. It sounds like we're similar in this approach, but realizing I remember being a teenager and I remember how frustrated I was when I felt like I wasn't like they didn't think I was capable of doing things or that I wasn't allowed to have independence that felt like it was safe and normal for me. And so I went into the teenage years thinking like, I don't want to limit their autonomy whenever possible, because psychologically, that actually is a stage where they're supposed to be getting independent. They're supposed to want to separate. They're not supposed to want to spend quite as much time with us as they maybe did when they were younger. Um, ironically, mine do want to still spend a lot of time together because maybe they don't feel limited, um, yeah. but just respecting their autonomy in that versus trying to limit it um, and it, realizing like I am yet to run into the whole parenting teenagers is hard thing. I think when you have that relationship with them from a young age and they don't feel like you're trying to unfairly limit their abilities to grow up, that they stay very responsible and capable and usually just blow me away with how capable they are. Yes, it's my
1: experience too. So far, I still got still have some kids but i have full faith that you know that every child is capable of whatever they aspire to do or be well this has been so amazing thank you for sharing again your your expertise in all these different areas you could leave one thing with the listeners is there anything you'd leave with us today
2: well i will say you make it super easy you're a great interviewer so this is blown by you make it very fun i could talk to you all day um There's so many different directions I I would go maybe with advice. I don't know. We have a family motto that you are made to do hard things, which we've said to the kids since they were little. But the other part I started adding in the last few years also, I think is a good caveat is, but everything doesn't have to be hard either. Um, So that's a, a commonly repeated phrase in our house. And I think from the parenting side, the other thing I would just say that I think has been really impactful in my relationship with my kids is that every single day they hear me say, I love you unconditionally. There's nothing you can ever do that will take away from that. And you never have to earn that because I feel like that's often maybe that second piece doesn't get said enough um, that love never has to be earned. And I think that just being an existing groundwork in the relationship has helped them be able to come to me with any problem they have and not feel like there's any kind of tension there. So I don't know. That's just one daily tip that I feel like it's really impactful for me. That's beautiful. Thank you. And where where can people find you, Katie? It's easy. I'm Wellness Mama everywhere online. So wellnessmama.com has everything the podcast is hosted there as well. And then social media, wellness mama as well. Okay. Awesome.
1: Thank you so much. Go and check check Katie out and all she has to offer. Thank you so much so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Family Brand podcast. To say thank you. We have something really awesome we'd love to share with you.
0: You know, we often hear from families who will tell us that they just feel so overwhelmed